This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. It's October the 22nd. My name is John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast, the website, bestfriends.org slash podcast. You might be saying, John, why do I need to go to the website? I listen to the podcast through Apple or Amazon or Google or Spotify. That's great, and thank you very much for subscribing on your platform of choice, but the website has information that you won't get there. We put up resources related to the episode. For example, if we talk about access to care, like we did on episode 33 with Shannon Glenn, on the website you'll find resources like how to start a pet food pantry or a vaccine clinic. Episode 24, we talked about the eviction crisis and how we can support pet owners through this time. We put up the temporary care program contract that Lost Our Home Pet Rescue uses. And we put up bios and photos of the guests so you can get to know them a little bit more and put a face to the name. So you can check it out, bestfriends.org slash podcast. This week, our guest is Kenny Lamberti. He works for Best Friends. His title is Director of Grassroots Advocacy. And I'm not even sure how you describe or introduce Kenny. Kenny is Kenny. And I mean that in the best way. He's a Renaissance man for sure incredibly knowledgeable, and just a magnificent person. Kenny, my introduction to you the first time was at a Best Friends internal meeting. It was a couple of years ago, I think, in Kanab, Utah. That's where the sanctuary is for those that maybe don't know. There were like a series of presentations from people. One of those days, not a dry eye in the room super emotional, just like all this inspiration work happening across the country. I remember you got up, just did this like extemporaneous speech. You talked about your history, how you grew up, your work experience, like how all of that is translated into this dedication, this passion you have for removing barriers, stereotypes, helping pets, helping people. So if you're up for it, I'd love for you just to, to share that. All right, cool, cool. You know what's ironic about that, John, was I hadn't even officially been hired yet. So I was in the process of going through all of that when I think it was Manager's Week or All Staff, and Julie said, hey, we know it's going to happen, so why don't you talk to the staff and um, whatnot? And I said, okay, sure. I don't even have business cards yet, but I'll do it. So, so okay, sure, that's a great place to start, and you stop me and, and direct me when needed. Um, I'm easy. So, you know, in effect... You know, my, I think everyone has a story, right? And everyone's story is unique and special and, and um, in their own way. And mine is just mine. So I, I'm humble and appreciative that mine happens to inspire people. And I'm grateful for that. And for a long time, I wouldn't share it because I didn't want to be so personal until I realized that being more personal and sharing some of my own story and feelings was um, actually helping me help more people, help more animals. And put something good into the world. So I now share it more freely. So, you know, I grew up in Boston. Um, I grew up in the in the city. You know, I grew up from how I like to call humble beginnings. I, ha I was lucky to have two parents. I have three siblings. 
And we were, you know, a, however you like to qualify, working class to working poor, working our way towards middle class, right? That struggle. And, and I'm 51 years old now. So that was um, in, the, in the 70s and then later in the, obviously the 80s. And, you know, I, I think that life teaches you a lot, right? You learn a lot about what it's like to go to school and maybe not have the latest Nikes when all your classmates have them. And try to think of why, why is like why is that? Is it because you know like of, is it just because of money, or is, maybe it's because the world doesn't give everyone the same lot in life, right? And you see like how do kids, black kids versus white kids, get treated? How do the teachers treat different people? So you grow up uh, in a way when you grow up in that environment that's unique in the sense that you get exposed to a lot. My parents were young, not college educated, not kind of you know they were working class you know, people. Um, and my father comes from abject, pretty severe poverty. My mother from um, slightly less poverty, but still not great means um, in a city that was racially divided and um, very tense in their time and in, in mine as well, but um, it had moved forward to some degree, right? And so that that's where it kind of it all starts and like navigating all of that with its own ups and downs. I had my own run-ins with law enforcement. I had my own kind of emotional dealings with what it was like to, you know, when you're a kid and you go to school, everyone's comparing, I got the new Nikes and I got the sweater and you don't have that. It sucks. You know, For we can be, we're all people. And when you feel left out um, of the of some of those things, and I had stuff, my parents got did the best they could. They got me what they could, but I didn't have you know, the, I think at the time, Nike Cortez's or when Air Jordans came out. As I got older, I found ways to get my own money. Not always um, legal ways, but it was motivated by that. At a young age, it was motivated because I wanted to have Air Jordans. I wanted to have the Adidas jacket. I wanted to be able to go to the arcade and have money to spend on things or to buy pizza. And I didn't, right? So I, I as a young person, you find a way to do that. So all of that kind of frames my early days, you know. Um, luckily, I was able to, I was a fairly good athlete and I went to college uh, to play basketball. And when I got to college, I was the only white kid on my basketball team. This was in Massachusetts, so I started at a junior college. So my best friends and the girls I dated and my kind of um, network of people were predominantly people of color and probably more specifically African-American, right? And this was in the late 80s. So that was the dawn of hip, what now hip hop culture is mainstream culture, right? Like the clothes, the music, the affect, all that stuff. I was lucky enough to watch that be born, right? Like there was no such thing as rap music. And I grew up in the era where it was invented and it wasn't mainstream. It was in many ways in the late 80s, it was punk rock, right? It was kind of what punk rock was in the 70s. And I watched it become mainstream. I watched white suburban families be terrified that their kids were wearing baggy pants and that they were listening to Run DMC and LL Cool J. And, and that, I think, was a really significant time in our culture. And especially given today where we're at with a lot that's going on with race, uh, the world changed significantly then because it was also the dawn of cable TV. We're still pre-internet, but we're cable TV where white suburban kids could watch um, Run DMC and Michael Jackson and black uh, people on, on, on TV, right? It was when Michael Jordan came to the NBA and kids who maybe loved Larry Bird prior to that all of a sudden loved Michael Jordan and Charles Barkley and Lashkill and all these people. So that kind of was a really 
Um, interesting time. Then all of a sudden we get the internet in the early 90s. And now you really have access with culture where you don't have to actually physically be part of culture. I always joke when I was a kid and I wanted to find new music, I had to go to the record store and dig through records and CDs. Now you can just Google it or, you know, I have a lot of tattoos. Now you can wake up on Tuesday and decide, hey, I want to be one of those tattooed guys and you go get a brand new sleeve tattoo at the mall. That wasn't true when I, when I grew up, right? You had to immerse yourself into a culture and meet real organic, living, breathing human beings. And, and those things then became part of you, right? So what formed me and became who I am as an adult are real life experiences, not Google searches, right? It was breakdancing in the park and it was going to um, hip hop shows with DJ parties and, and seeing people fight over things and seeing drug dealers and 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 dating uh, women, black women, not just white women, and different things. Real life experiences, I guess, formed who I am. Not just in regards to race, but the lens through which I see the world. Right. And so then um, I become a professional. And, and at the time, I wanted to be a teacher more than anything in the world, and a social worker. I wanted to work in in those communities and do work with young people. Because um, I always had an ability for whatever it was, whether I was coaching kids in basketball or um, talking to people on the block, I always had maybe a little bit of, now I live in the South, a little bit of what they call a, a pastor mentality. I could always inspire people, right? So I became a teacher and I worked in Boston public schools. In Boston, they have schools called Point Four schools at the time. I don't know if they still do. Worked basically where they housed, warehoused all kids who were, had special ed, had IEPs, educational education plans which really became behavioral. These kids, very few of them had, you know, or many of them didn't have learning disabilities. They were just gang-involved kids, legally-involved kids. So I worked and taught um, at that school. And that long story leads me to my work in animals. Um, I had a pit bull at the time. I've always had dogs, particularly bully breed dogs. And I brought my dog um, to school one day. It was a nice fall day and I let him sit in my truck in the parking lot. And, you know, at the end of the day, I went out to get in the truck and go home. And all my students, I taught 11th grade. I also coached the basketball team. 90% uh, of my students were African-American and a small percentage of Latino kids saw my dog in the parking lot and they all loved him. They're like, wow, he's beautiful. Like, I love that his name was Hank, big bully, 90 pound, huge head dog. And I had this epiphany that, this dog became this conduit and that broke down certain barriers. They broke down the barrier of teacher student of age of someone in the thirties, someone as a teenager of white, black, it disarmed both of us. And it was this really, this conduit. And so I slowly started integrating my dog into stuff. I bring my dog to practice and I would have my, my TA, my teaching assistant, watch the dog and the kids would walk the dog and the dog became the mascot for the basketball team. And this dog became a real central piece. And the more I used the dog, the more my kids were open to studying history, the more they were engaged in class, right? The more they kind of respected me and the more we kind of built a rapport. And it was a real watershed moment for me, right? And then I learned more specifically about, you know, the, again, this was in the mid nineties and I was learning about um, some of the things around bully breed dogs and breed discriminatory things and how often those dogs and um, the way we kind of stereotype and judge particularly young men of color in urban communities and there was a lot of weird intersection and overlap. And I started 
Um, in the summer, most, most teachers have a summer job and I didn't want to paint houses or do landscaping. So I studied and apprenticed and learned to become a dog trainer. I opened a dog training school. And in my dog training school, I offered free classes to uh, people who couldn't afford it. And, and when my school was in the city. So a lot of the people who came to those classes were people from lower socioeconomic brackets. And it was very diverse. I had a lot of young black men, to be frank, with, with bully breed dogs. And I started this program. I started, you know, collecting money to for dog food or or for medical things um, for people so they could keep their dogs. But what I noticed was the love and bond in with those students versus my kind of what I call my money clients. The more a lot of kind of more upwardly mobile clients who lived slightly outside the city who had golden retrievers and things like that. Um, the love was the same. The bond and affection and affinity that that the people had for their dogs and the dogs had for the people was the same. And in some cases, maybe even you can make an argument that that love and affinity for the people who had maybe less material things in their life was even greater. The dog became a real source of companionship and trust. And so I started studying that, and that led me to um, HSUS was had a program called End Dog Fighting. Um, they were looking to morph that program into something a little bit different. Long story short, they brought me in and that gave, I, along with a couple other people, gave birth to what became known as Pets for Life. And that program was really groundbreaking in the fact that it was the first real program to look at um, social issues, to look at poverty, and to put animal welfare in a lane that wasn't such a monolith, something that we still struggle with today, right? Diversity. Um, and inclusion are, are, are a hot topic now, but it's a hot topic because we have a long way to go. And so I, I like to think I was at a key moment in time in animal welfare with that, with that Pets for Life program. You know, it grew to be pretty a pretty big national program. It's what where I kind of built my career in terms of animal welfare specifically and kind of how I ended up at Best Friends. And, and what that all, all of that long story taught me was that you can't quantify love. You can't quantify how the importance and value of a pet, um, in this case, particularly a dog, means to human beings, and that it's an incredible unifying thing. And now in a time where we have such divide and we're so polarized as a country, we're doing this podcast after, you know, maybe the biggest debacle in the history of presidential debates. But what's funny is I bet most of the people on the far right and the far left who are yelling and screaming at each other, just like their candidates are on TV. I bet most of them have dogs and cats, right? And I bet they genuinely care about their dogs and cats. It's funny. I bet, you know, whether you like are a huge supporter of Black Lives Matter, which I am, or you're you find it have issue with that movement. I bet you still have dogs and cats because what we know is close to 80 percent of American families and households have a dog and cat in it. So to me, that's the moral of the story, right? That, A, I think of dogs and cats as teachers. I learn from them because dogs and cats have an amazing ability to forgive, to take people at face value. And if someone's kind to them and cares for them, they're cool with it. And I think we have a lot to learn from literally from dogs and cats, but also from the way we live, share our lives with dogs and cats. And that's really my mission. My mission, yes, it's no kill because I work for best friends and I, and I believe in it and, and I, we're going to achieve it. But my mission is really to look at the relationship we all share with dogs and cats, the role they play in our lives and our communities, and try to put that on steroids, lack of a better term, and build a kinder, more humane, unified world. And it sounds 
pie in the sky, but I don't think it is actually. I think I think we have the ability to be better. You know, dogs and cats and our relation to them can play a really amazing role if we allow it to and we humble ourselves enough to kind of see what's right in front of our face, barking and purring every day. So I know there's a lot there, but I'll stop there. But that in a nutshell is the kind of the journey. Yeah, a lot there. Kenny. Yeah. I was trying to take some mental notes as you went along. Uh, a lot that I want to talk about, but <laughs> the politics, I want to be careful. We can't detach a lot of what we're facing, yeah. uh, the issues in our work from politics in some sense, but I don't want this to become some like Democrat versus Republican thing. Yeah. yeah. But your bit about people of all political stripes loving pets, it reminded me of a thing we did at Best Friends. It was like my second year here. President Obama won the first term, 2008. And I don't know if you remember this, but they didn't have a dog. And there was this huge conversation going about them getting a dog. No, and yeah, yeah. we thought like, hey, let's do a petition. We'll make a whole thing of it. We'll um, you know, try to make this plea for them adopting a dog. What a great idea. <laughs> and you know, just piggybacking off the biggest story in the country and people flipped out. <laughs> I mean, we like, well, I guess 50% of the people flipped out. Yeah. We got angry emails and calls. Yeah. Like, I get it. You don't like him. You voted for John McCain. But let's step back right. and try to think of the bigger picture. But that's politics, isn't it? That's right. So, you know, I don't want to cloud today's discussion. I'm sure some people heard me just say Obama and they turned us off. So yeah. if you're still here, thank you. Um, but there is a point here, which is being open, listening to people. Yeah. We may not have all grown up the way you did in this very diverse environment. But the worst thing we can do, I think, is just shut ourselves off to the experiences of others. That's right. And you know, make fun, mock like woke culture or whatever, like as if gaining knowledge and understanding is a negative. And, you know, I consider myself to be someone who seeks out knowledge and understanding Kenny, but I still don't know what it's like to be you or anybody else. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, and I think that's okay. And so if even if you just remove race from the equation and you're John, I'm Kenny, right? I can never know what it's like to be John because I don't, I'm not John. You can never know what it's like to be Kenny, but we can do the best we can to understand and kind of embrace like difference is opportunity. Difference is a value add to our lives. Like the whole idea of being woke or, or whatever it is that the term is these days, at the end of the day, the more we're exposed to that's different from us, not just race, anything, the better we become that that all of it all of it is a value add even the stuff and oftentimes especially the stuff that triggers us or we disagree with because you know i make it a point and it drives my wife a little bit crazy but i watch fox news and i, and I force myself to watch it and i'm more i lean more left right so i won't get into politics but i watch it and i force myself i used to do this more often i would take notes of things that i learned or things that i found interesting right? Instead of focusing on things that maybe upset me. And now we live in a society where you, you have to hate everything that's not in your team, this almost extreme tribalism. And that what it really does is minimize our ability to be richer, fuller, more knowledgeable people. Like to me, um, left, right, like this, we, 
we feel almost compelled to have to identify and pick a team. And instead of looking at it all as opportunity, right? Like I'm sure in the course of this podcast, I'll say something that someone's head explodes about, or, oh my God, choose the wrong word or well, and like, this this culture of like everyone's waiting for a gotcha moment, right? Like, why is this white guy even talking about race? Blah 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 blah. Right? Why are these two white guys talking about like? Why isn't that a great thing? As opposed to pretending that we don't have to talk about it, or pretending that we're so woke we already know it all. Having the conversation and allowing other people to hopefully peek into this conversation is a value add all the time. If we choose to pick out the nuggets that we can learn from. And that might be different versus choosing to find the gotcha moment. I've said this on the podcast before, Kenny, that travel is my thing. Um, In Latin America, it's somewhere that gave me a different understanding of pet ownership. For example, standards of care. You see the dog on the side of the busy road. Immediately, you're terrified. You pull over. You want to help the dog. And then you realize this dog's like 13 has a collar, everybody in the neighborhood feeds this dog, and this dog's fat and happy. Do I love it? No. But is thrusting my views of ownership, does that make any sense? Of course, it's useless. And maybe my views is like, quote unquote, the wrong perspective. But that's international travel, right? Broadening the horizons. But what you just said, it sort of clicked with me that we don't often think of parts of our own communities as the opportunities to get that same education about other cultures. Like we could travel in our own communities. Do you know what I mean? And it's so funny because we likely have neighbors who have, like you said, you go to Costa Rica and what do you do? You you, you can't wait to experience the cuisine and, and look at the architecture and understand the history and, and the, the affect of how people interact with each other. But you probably have neighbors within three or four houses of where you live who have different cuisine and, have, and maybe different language and history. But, but instead of, you know, seeing that as value, we build a big fence around our house and we don't want to go over there and talk to them. Every place I've ever worked, and I've now worked, I think, in 47 of the 50 states, uh, and I would always go to every community shelter directors and be like, listen, there's a part of your community, and I emphasize this is your community that you haven't been to yet. You don't know them and they don't know you. It's your job to also go there with the first mission of just to seek to understand. Seek to understand. Don't go in with an agenda that we're going to make sure they all spay neuter their pets or that that they all you know have their pets leashed or whatever it is, right? Or that they have microchips. We, if as soon as you go in with an agenda, you skip steps, right? You fast forwarded past understanding how the community functions uh, from the jump. And, and, and but we don't, we're, we, I don't know what has happened in our culture to create that dynamic, but we don't, where we fight it with everything we have to not do that. And we'd rather be comfortable, right? We'd rather exist amongst people who make sense to us, you know, or, or live more similarly to we do. That limits our ability um, to grow and understand knowledge is power, right? And you don't have to, it's not a woke contest. It's not a, a contest of who suffered the most or who's been oppressed the most. And 
that's what it turned into, right? Like whether, you know, we had the Me Too movement not not very long ago, it's still going. And now we have the Black Lives Matter movement. And like caring about one doesn't mean you don't care about the other, just like with the environment versus animals, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We can just be open to learn. Do that with a pure heart. To me, it all stems from that. And viewing difference as opportunity versus something to fear. Trying to change people to think the way we think is is part of where America went wrong historically, right? Like, look what we did to Native Americans and, you know, colonization and different things. And there's beautiful things. America is a great country. America is a beautiful, amazing, rich cult- culture and country. But we're not perfect. And our history has some dark pages to it. And we can't just leave them out of the book, right? We can learn from them and 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 appreciate them and understand them and do better because of them. But I'm not sure we're wanting to do that. Going back to what we were saying about not knowing, you know, the neighbor four houses down, I don't know a lot of mine, Kenny. So I'm as guilty as they come on this one. Um, and I want to talk about the kindness cards because I know they've played a big role in uh, in your work since COVID kicked off. But that example of reaching out and, you know, connecting with others and understanding people and that, like you can't understate how important that is. Like, let's think of our goal, our best friend's goal of, you know, achieving no kill, right, by 2025. When you really think about the path to that goal, a huge piece of this is understanding why that happens in the first place in certain places more than others, right? Why is a particular shelter having positive outcomes for 50% of their pets versus 95? Why in a certain community is spay neuter not normative behavior? You know, and I think reaching across to understand that first is the key, right? Because that, that you can't answer that via data. No data point is going to answer that question for us. Data can, can help us figure out where to go, but it, it won't actually answer the question, right? The data is incredibly important, both in pointing us where to go, know what we're solving for, and measuring our success. But it won't actually answer the question of why. Numbers can never answer the question of why. That's what my work is. My work is getting out both into shelters, but more importantly, into communities and talking to people and saying, like, hey, this is the state of things in your community. Statistically, let's dig in and talk to people, talk to your neighbors. Let's talk to car, who people who own businesses, talk to elected officials, talk to people at the school, at the church, at the temple, at the mosque, at the Boys and Girls Club, at the YMCA, at the CrossFit gym, at the swap meet, wherever people congregate, talk to people. And the simple conversation of, hey, my name's John. I love cats and dogs. I'm trying to help our community do right by our cats and dogs. You know, what do you think? If you, if everyone just did that, think how simple that is. Imagine how much information we would extract. And, and then we could d- develop the systems and programs we need to address those needs. And that's at, at the core of what I'm doing in terms of grassroots is getting information from people and then connecting more and more people, connecting John with Mike, with Lisa, with Jose, with Tom, with Selena, with Sean, and then giving them a place to center around a mission to do, tasks to do, um, resources and tools created, toolkits, technical, technological resources, then to plug that back into the shelter and the rescues, etc. Connect all those dots in a way where we're all we're all rowing in one direction and that direction the destination is dogs and cats and shelters don't die anymore 
The second level of that is dogs and cats don't suffer in communities anymore, right? That way they never end up in the shelter down the road, right? And that, that's adjacent to the mission. That's the work we're doing, but it all really comes from those same philosophies and mindsets of getting to know people, understanding people, removing as much of the bias and judgment that we all have, myself too. No one lives without them. Um, it's part of being a human being. But removing them, acknowledging them, and asking questions and understanding first. It's the key. And it's a struggle a bit right now because our culture is not, we're drifting. You know, we're drifting from that. Anyways, I know I went off on a tangent there, John, so I'll, I'll stop there. Dude, tangents are fine, man. We're not bound by rules here. <laughs> but Kenny, I'm now inspired to go out and meet people, but that's easier said than done. <laughs> and I, I'm still going to have hangups. My brain is programmed for one kind of way of thinking sometimes, right? Right, right? So how can I actually turn that corner and and walk the walk, if you will? Yeah. Particularly for people who are listening that maybe aren't as outgoing, loud, chatty, whatever, however you want to describe the two of us. <laughs> like you're asking me to change a lot about myself. Yeah, great question. So, you know, it's funny. One of the things we take great pride in in my um, small but mighty grassroots team is we want to have per se a menu item for everybody. So if you're more of an introvert and you are more comfortable, you know, at home on your laptop, the beauty of technology is it opens doors for everyone, especially people who aren't as, as you say, gregarious and outgoing as us. So we've created virtual ways for people to connect. We've created, we've given people tools and resources where how you can reach out to your legislators and officials. We have, for example, I have an intern on my team um, named Katrina, uh, African-American woman lives lives uh, here in Louisiana. And she, um, who's a little bit more reserved and shy, she reached out to, um, we're working on, uh, one of the things we're working on as a department is fair housing, housing that's more accepting of all breeds and types of dogs, pet-friendly housing. And so she reached out to, I think she's got almost 60 different um, housing entities now across the country who she just reached out and we gave her a little bit of a script, some talking points through emails. She made some phone calls as she got more comfortable and just got all this information on what their existing pet policies were. We gave her some how she could give them some resources, information, data, and examples of maybe more pet-friendly housing, right? She did all that from her couch with her laptop, right? Yes, we want to get people more comfortable with going out and talking to people. And we train people on that, on how to have effective conversations. It, you'd be amazed at how challenging it is for some people to know just how to say hello to someone they don't know. And so we train people and we do role playing and we do these virtual calls with what our, our action teams, which, by the way, I should mention proudly, we have 16,000 um, action team members now across all 50 states. And we've done that. From zero, we had zero. It didn't exist 10 and a half months ago. So in less than 11 months, we now have 16,000 action teamers representing all 50 states who are doing a variety of different things. Pretty amazing. It's a testament to the people, everyday citizens raising their hand and saying, I want to help. Uh, it's unacceptable to me that dogs and cats, you know, not today, right? Dogs and cats aren't going to die in my community unnecessarily today. We're really proud of that. And we train and teach people how to get more comfortable reaching out and talking to people. But we also make sure that if you can't do that, 
Um, we want to help you use technology, help you maybe recruit and find other people. So maybe you can be behind the scenes, create strategy, print materials, um, do research, collect data, and then hand that information to people who maybe are a little bit more like you and I, who are happy going door to door. So there's a role for everyone. I think of it um, like sports. You know, if you were coaching the Chicago Bulls back during their heyday, you wouldn't have Dennis Rodman shooting three-pointers, right? But if you get him playing defense and rebounding, you win the title. And I think that's the role uh, that I play as a coach, trying to put people in the right position. If your position is behind a keyboard, awesome. Let's let's get you to all-star level caliber keyboard, right? And if you're great at talking to people and you have an outgoing personality, let's get you out talking to people. And that's what we try to do is there's a role for everybody. And that's kind of what my team um, in effect is trying to do, meeting people and trying to position them in a way where they can win the title. I mentioned travel earlier. Great example of opportunities to talk to people, get on a plane, four hours from Detroit to Utah. By the time we land, they're donating to you know your organization, uh, but we don't have that anymore, right? So at least not like we used to. Uh, I mean, I won't even go in Starbucks. <laughs> so without those opportunities to interface with people, talk to people in person, how are you getting your action team folks, the chattiest ones, certainly, how are you getting them out there? Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's no doubt a challenge, but we have been forced um, to be innovative and creative. And we've come up with some great ideas. Like one of the ones that was a big hit was we created something called Community Kindness Cards. The idea was really from your um, homeland. It really came out of the UK. And it was a simple idea. Um, we created these cards about the size of a postcard. And it's very simple and bold at the top. said, my name is with a space. You put your name in. And it says, you know, I'm your neighbor. Um, I love cats and dogs. I can help in these ways. Can you help too? And there was some check boxes. I can donate food. I can, you know, send emails. And we encouraged people and we did training, virtual training on how to respect uh, social distancing, wearing a mask and public health concerns, which I have to be diligent about because my wife is CEO of a public health org. So I get chastised if I don't. But we made sure to cover, to be good global citizens and protect our community from that. But to how to people, we made these cards that anyone could print. And if they couldn't print them, my team diligently printed thousands of them and mailed them to people across the country. And when we said, leave them in mailboxes, leave them in the, you know, the free public library um, little stands you see in certain neighborhoods. Leave them at the, when you check out at the grocery store. If you order pizza, you know, give the guy, hey, I'll give you an extra tip if you drop one of these cards off everywhere you deliver a pizza today. We encourage people to be creative and get stacks of these cards because shockingly, even during this really um, dreadful, scary time with COVID-19, people are finding ways to connect. We're doing curbside pickup for, you know, different things for groceries or Amazon. We're still maybe even, you know, getting a lot of, I think, doing a lot of takeout food. You know, people are getting together to have drinks six feet apart in lounge chairs or gathering in different ways. So what we wanted to do was we asked people, again, it all comes back to we asking questions first. We would ask people, our action teamers, how are you connecting with people now? How are you connect if you're faith-based group is a big part of your life. How are you staying in touch with other, other members of your church? And what we did was say, okay, can you use these cards in all those arenas? 
it's less impactful than our bread and butter, which is going door to door, old school, civil rights inspired, grassroots door to door community organizing. But you've got to be creative, right? We created these kindness cards and they were booming. I can give one quick example in Florida. One woman, she called our action team to join the action team and said, I feel stuck. I feel paralyzed. COVID is making me crazy. I don't know how to stay connected. So we told her about the kindness cards. In less than two months, she had over 100 neighbors and community members create a food pet food bank. It actually turned into a human food bank where they were collecting human food for people. And they were taking turns delivering this curbside to community members and donating to the local shelter. My team, amazing, my amazing, amazing creative team developed these kindness cards. And I, who knows how many people in Florida, uh, people and pets got helped because of that. So we're finding ways to be creative and, and connect people. What is the goal of this action team, Kenny? The 16,000 people, I think you said, and growing. Knowing you, it's probably to talk to every pet owner in America, but in the kind of short and long term, what what is the goal? Yeah, I think that's uh, a great question. So I think there's a couple high level goals. Like one, I think one of the one of the goals that isn't a stated goal in some sort of like spreadsheet, but it's woven into everything we do. Every word we type into a document, every call we have, every community we target, being more inclusive and diverse and bringing new people from new communities that we have marginalized. They haven't marginalized themselves from the animal welfare movement. We've forgotten them. Bringing those communities and those individuals and those institutions into the fold is a constant everyday goal. And, and it doesn't have to be a program. We don't need a diversity and inclusion program per se for us. It's just woven into everything we do. It's mindful in all of our language. So that's one piece. But our goals are many, uh, much of the work we do for far too long, the burden of it all has come on, fallen on shelters and rescues and large national groups like Best Friends. We want to increase the bandwidth of that and let communities hold that up themselves. Let communities themselves become the tent poles that support pet dogs and cats living healthy, happy lives and not dying unnecessarily in shelters. So in a broad macro sense, that's the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is that to create a scenario where communities don't need us as much. And in some places, maybe not at all. It's just not sustainable, right? No one has the resources in, no shelter has the resources to carry the weight and brunt of this uh, um, the way we have for so long. That's kind of the macro goal. The micro goal is also amplifying the message. We want things I take for granted, right? I wake up and I take for granted, like I don't even have to think about, of course, if I'm going to get a dog, I'm going to adopt it, right? Of course, if I get a dog, I'm going to spay or neuter it. That's not true for everyone. Right now, less than 30% of the pets that live in homes in this country came to those homes via what we would consider rescue and adoption, right? And you can play with the numbers. It's significantly less than half, right? And that's because... Not And not all people in all communities wake up with that same thought you and I have. Well, of course, we all adopt our pets. We all get them spayed and neutered. That's not true everywhere. So making sure that information um, reaches everyone. You made the joke earlier about my goal might be to touch everyone and talk to everyone everywhere. And I want the information to connect with everyone everywhere. That can actually happen. Kenny Lamberti or John Dunn or... We, we clearly can't, but the information can, right? Love or hate technology, it's here to stay, right? So I want to use it for, for the power of, of good. So to me, that other goal is that the information that best suits dogs and cats reaches everyone, every community, every individual, everywhere. When you know better, you do better, right? And if everyone's armed with the information, 
And then secondly, as access to the services, both to adopt and care for their pets um, in, in the most humane way, we win. We get our, we, we achieve our goal, but more importantly, it never reverts back. If we have to carry the weight of that, for, when I say we, I mean best friends, I mean shelters, all our amazing network partners, all the incredibly hardworking people who work every day in, in the animal space, we can't carry the weight of this. And then kind of, I guess, a, a secondary kind of goal of mine is um, that we have more representation, that there's more people, um, and it ties to the diversity piece, but that when we're deciding program goals for big national organizations like Best Friends, that some of these people we meet in all these amazing communities are part of that process, that they're on our boards, that they hold executive level positions. The more people in high level decision-making positions that are more representative of what this awesome country is, which isn't a monolith, the better we all are. So that's a, a kind of um, adjacent goal to all the stuff I just shared. Probably a lot of ways to describe you, Kenny, and I mean that in the best way. <laughs> One of them, I think, is uh, centered, grounded, intense, as I'm sure people are picking up on. Yeah. Um, but you do yoga, you meditate, and I, I think it's fair to say you're spiritual. Yeah. These are trying times. How are you keeping it together? How are you staying sane? Um, well, first, I think there's a bunch of people out there who know me well who chuckle at the thought that I'm sane. But uh, that aside, that, that, that aside, you know, I studied martial arts for a long time. And you're right, I do. I meditate. And I struggle to, to keep up with my practice just like anybody else. But it's a constant, um, at least I have effort in that direction, right? And I think the biggest thing I do is letting things go and realizing that most things aren't personal. When I see something on social media that upsets me, it's not about me. It's not personal towards me, right? Or when I see, you know, a, a politician say something that I take offense with, he or she, they're not saying it to me. So I try to first remember to not take things personally and remember that we all have one thing in common. We actually get to choose. I get to choose every day if I want to live and exist in a place of light or a place of darkness, right? I get to choose. No one can thrust and force that upon me. Not a pandemic, not a, a, a tumultuous political climate, not a partner, not a friend, not a family member. No one has the power to do that to me. That's my biggest thing. My wife and I have a ritual that we don't always keep up with, but every we take a post-it note at the end of the day and we both write two things on it that we wanna let go. And we light it on fire and we let it burn away. And sometimes it's simple things like about each other. I'm going to let go of the fact that she yelled at me for no reason about the laundry. Sometimes I'm going to let go. I saw an ugly racist post on Facebook from a, someone who I thought was a friend. You know, we let these things go. And that ritual practice of letting things go is really meaningful because I think what happens is we, we're constantly bombarded with stuff, right? Facebook, Instagram, CNN, the Fox, the news, works, Zoom, Zoom meetings, ad advertising, this constant vibration of stuff. Unfortunately, sometimes the negative stuff sticks in our cells throughout the day, right? I know this all sounds a little, you know, new agey, but this is, there's actually science behind this. And if we hold on to that stuff, like it becomes poison and eats away at us like a cancer. And then we go to bed with all that crap and wake up with the same crap the next day. And then all it takes is one thing someone says to wake all that crap back up. 
right? And I don't want to live with that crap. You know, there's an, I lived in Japan for a while, right? And I studied martial arts. There's a great saying, and this sums this up for me. I'll take this long point home. In effect, the translation doesn't completely work, but in every meadow or field, there's weeds and there's flowers. We get to choose, do we want to focus on the flower or the weeds? We get to choose. Every, you know, ugly thing that I see in the world, there's something kind and beautiful that happened as well. And I have a choice. And right now it's really hard. It's hard to look at, hey, 200,000 people in our country die with this pandemic. You, know, you may know this, the listeners may not, but I had, I was, I had COVID-19. My brother actually has it now and he's a little sick. And I, I could choose to be mad or sad about that. Or I could choose to say, I beat it and I'm super healthy. I could choose to look at the fact that I feel good today. I could choose to look at the fact that I wake up in my really beautiful home with my wife and my dog. I, I get to choose. I could choose to look at some of the hateful racist propaganda that, that seems to be popping up more now. I get could choose. I'm not going to ignore it. I'm never going to be an ostrich. I'm not going to stick my head in the sand. I'm not saying that. I'm not, I'm not Pollyanna. I'm intimately aware of the, the shit and crap that's out there. But I choose to acknowledge it and put it on a post-it note, burn it up, let it fizzle away and try to hold on to the flowers in that meadow the best I can. And it sounds hokey and crazy. And at different points in my life, I definitely chose darkness. And I know what that was like and I don't want to go back there. And, you know, I think I have that reference point always in the back of my mind of what it was like to live in a place that was more enveloped in darkness. And I, and I don't want to be that and I don't want to give that to other people. Everybody listening to this, I think, probably, is here because they know best friends on some level. Um, you work in the field, volunteer, you visited. Um, and, you know, this place, this organization, can it's very special to me. Yeah. Um, it, it, I, I don't think I could work anywhere else in animal welfare. Yeah. Uh, and that's not a slight to any other yep. organization. But who Best Friends is, the organization, the guiding principles, the mission is important. It means the world to me, but the vision, that's everything. Um, and the vision, for those that don't know it, is a better world through kindness to animals. Yeah. A better world for all of us, right? Not just animals, but people. And I hope, I, I truly hope everyone can find a way to connect to that vision. I love that. You know what? I think we always, language is important, right? I think one simple word that you use three times in that kind of soliloquy is us. And us includes all of us. The animals are part of us. Republicans, Democrats, white, black, old, young, uh, religion. Us is all of us. It's not, again, it sounds hokey, but it's not. The more we think of us as all of us, the, the closer we get to that vision. This has been John and Kenny on the Meaning of Life podcast. <laughs> I love it. Hey, you know what, John, this stuff, it is part of our work, right? And it might, people might, you know, think we, we're um, on an illegal substance or maybe it's legal where they're from now, but we're not, right? Like this is, to me, the heart and soul and spirit we bring to our job, no matter what that means to each individual, is the work, man. Like it is like this work is not um, separate from, from all those things. Right. It, it's just not when you lose that, I think you lose the special sauce, right? The, the, the special sauce to all this, I want to encourage everyone to think back to that initial spark 
Why do you have the job you have? Or why did you start on this journey, whether it was last year or 30 years ago, um, something sparked it in you. And that spark wasn't a spreadsheet. I will bet you there wasn't a spreadsheet. It was a feeling. You saw a dog on the side of the road or, or something, right? Or you grew up with a, with a dog or a cat. There was a feeling in you that sparked why you're here listening to this podcast and you have the job you do. We can't lose that, man. That, that, that spark is really, really important. It's what keeps us going. So I, I think that's really important to not lose it. Maybe we've hammered this too much today. I don't know. Um, I was starting to think like, who the hell wants to listen to the two of us talk about this yeah. <laughs> to no end? But it's an important topic. And, uh, you know, if you weren't Kenny, uh, you were, I don't know, a man, Deepak Chopra. <laughs> no one would be thinking twice about this conversation. But, you know, I don't think you have to be an expert on this. We're all going through stuff. Yeah, yeah. We can all learn from each other. Yeah on this topic, yep. just like we do others. Yeah. This stuff is real. I think we need to bring it out into the open more. And it, it's as important a conversation as it is having you on to, to go through tactics on building a grassroots movement. Yep. Um, I guess technically these things really are related. <laughs> uh, and if anyone is uh, thinking, well, why are John Dunn and Kenny Lamberti off on this whole thing? Uh, I guess just pretend Kenny is Deepak Chopra. <laughs> I wish. You know, I'm going to butcher this, but you know the Gandhi quote about how we, we you can judge the greatness of a society of the way it treats animals? I've seen that poster in a million shelters, right? I've seen these posters in, in shelters about kindness, and I see T-shirts, or I see you know people post things on social media about these ideas you and I are talking about all the time, these kind of you know, beliefs about kindness and, and love, right? Love wins and all these things. So I'm not diminishing the value of that. But if you're standing with that, you know, poster behind you, but then you're rejecting the person standing in front of you who, who woke up and made the choice to adopt, adopt a dog, like there's a word for that. It's called hypocrisy, right? Oftentimes, and not, I'm not, this isn't geared at animal shelters. It's geared at us as, a, as people, right? How much of your actual life is living in accordance with what you claim to value the most? And if we value kindness the most in animal welfare, which is a pretty consistent theme, right? Are we living in accordance with that value every day? Are we living in accordance with our colleagues? Are we being generous to our colleagues? Are we being generous to the shelter down the street that maybe functions differently than us? Or are we trashing them on Facebook? Are we being kind to that adopter? Are we being kind to the person in the community who has a golden noodle that they bought from a breeder? Are we being kind, are we being generous to the person who has an intact bully breed dog at the dog park? Oftentimes I think we're not. And I'm not saying those things shouldn't piss us off. I'm not saying those things shouldn't elicit a response, but is the most strategic thing to do to yell at that person, bash that person, go on Facebook and trash that shelter? Or is the most strategic thing to do to meet them with what we claim we value, kindness and generosity and compassion, and talk to them. And I think 10 out of 10 times, the most strategic thing to do is to talk to them. No one changes their behavior by being chastised. That Gandhi quote, uh, people often leave the back half of that off. Um, so it's the greatness of a nation can be judged by the way its animals are treated, 
but don't forget to treat people like shit. <laughs> That's an often forgotten part of that quote. <laughs> just kidding. Uh, I think we should probably wrap it up, man. I mean, I'm going to have to edit this down. I mean, I don't know what it's going to turn out to be, but we've been going for like an hour and a half. Yeah. Um, I've enjoyed every minute of it, as I always do talking to you. Yeah. Uh, I appreciate you. Yeah. Uh, but you need to go back to work because how else uh, can Kenny meet every single person in America? Yeah, I'm, too, I'm super grateful, John. I think um, I know you can edit this to make it sound more less of a stream of consciousness, <laughs> but um, it was awesome. I loved it. It was great. I hope people who are listening to it love it. And just, you know, again, just take a second and think about these things. You know, how am I treating people? Am I living, am I living up to the values I say are important to me? Once again, we have resources up on the website, including the kindness cards Kenny mentioned and some other resources on getting active in your community. Also a link to sign up and join the action team. I'd like to thank the producers of the podcast, Tawny Hammond, Amy Charlton, and Mark Peralta. My name is John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast.